Jesus, you're over all things you created today. You're giving us breath right now. And you allowed us to come here. You brought us here. Thank you that we, we can know you. And for many in this room, we do know you. For some who don't are here to hopefully know you more and come to know you and be saved. We pray that that would happen today for those in this room that uh, would not claim you, Jesus, as their Savior or Lord, that they would, they would be saved. You would save them. They know who they are. And would you be with uh, everyone in this room who is a believer, who has believed the gospel and been saved, Lord, would you strengthen them and strengthen me to believe more as uh, we so often want to unbelieve. So help our belief, Lord. Make us believe, and uh, we just want to see you more. We trust that you'll do it, and we need you to do it, because without you, none of this matters. We love you. In your name, amen. All right. I love history, love, love history, and in turn, like geography. And one building that I remember, as long as I can remember back, is the Eiffel Tower. It's a building that I never went, oh yeah, I remember being seven, and the Eiffel Tower appeared in a book. It's just something that's been a part of my life for my whole life, for most of you too. If you don't know what that is, the Eiffel Tower is a building in Paris, for the 1% of you who don't know. So the Eiffel Tower is something that, as a kid, you see in movies and books and TV shows and in your classroom on, on the walls and all these things. And about 10 years ago, I had an opportunity to travel to Paris uh, for like a weekend whirlwind trip thing. And I was super excited. I don't really like French culture at all, but I love all the history. And so I remember landing in the airport, which is really far outside the city. But as soon as we got anywhere close to the city, my like radar was on for one thing. I want to see the Eiffel Tower. There's a ton of other historic buildings, more historic, more beautiful buildings in Paris. But that's all I cared about, whether I meant to or not. And so we get kind of into town. And we get on a bus to do a bus tour where you stay on the bus the whole time and a tour guide's on there talking through the mic and you sightsee kind of all the big checkmark items in Paris. And again, the whole time I'm looking out the window and I'm like blown away because I love history. But the whole time I'm just going, where is it? Where is it? I want to see it. And we rounded, we turned some corner and it was, a, it was in January, the super snow, snowy, like foggy day. Couldn't see much visibility. I remember kind of leaning back in my chair, being super tired after the super long flight. And then like it just appeared like off in the distance, the Eiffel Tower. And it was kind of foggy. You couldn't really make it out. But it was just this massive, imposing building. And I snapped that picture with my iPhone 4 through the bus window. <laughs> and that was one of the first pictures I took of it. Because I was like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. Even though it was really far away, it was just this amazing thing. And even as I see that picture, I can think through that feeling that I had. And I remember knowing, like, the Eiffel Tower is iconic, and it's huge, and there's a ton of history to it. But I didn't quite grasp how amazing it was till I saw it in person. And this was enough. If that would have been it, I would have probably been disappointed. But anywhere in Paris, pretty much, because everything's pretty low, you can see the Eiffel Tower. So we went to the top of the Notre Dame Cathedral, and the thing that grasped my attention on the Notre Dame Cathedral was the Eiffel Tower. When we're walking around the grassy area or along the river, it's always, you're always drawn to it. There it is, there it is, there it is. And then I got to go up close to it. And again, it looks huge, but it's like there's bigger buildings. There's tons of bigger buildings. There's tons of taller buildings. But then when I got up close to it, I understood just how like grand and massive it was. I took that with like the panoramic, you know, thing to try to get the whole thing in one shot. 
there's a, a road, there's a bridge right there on the river that goes across, and it's four to six lanes. And if that road continued, it would easily fit underneath the Eiffel Tower, which even as I describe it, I'm like, that's a super not exciting fact. But when you're there, you're like, how is this thing so big? And you walk underneath it, and it's just iron everywhere, and it's humongous and tall. And I never quite understood how incredible it was till I got to be there in person, standing right next to it, going underneath it. We have a monument in our own state that most of us who grew up here have probably never been to called the Grand Canyon. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. It's, you know, 18 miles wide. It's 170-something or 270-something miles long. It's over a mile deep. And I wasn't born here, but I'm basically an Arizona native, so that means I went like once when I was a kid and basically have never gone back. Those of you who grew up here know what I'm talking about. You show up and you're like, why are all these people from all over the world here? Oh, because it's incredible. Well, Amanda and I went probably a decade ago, maybe a little less than that, uh, to see the Grand Canyon, finally, as adults. And it almost felt like a bother, like, this feels unnecessary, like I've seen it once. We get there. And if you've been there, you know. You kind of drive up and you park, and you don't really know where it is. And then you walk around a little corner, and then it's just this massive, beautiful, incredible, awe-inspiring, indescribably beautiful canyon. It's one and a half times the size of Rhode Island. Again, it's over a mile deep. And all these facts like in your brain are like, wow, that's big. But you don't really get how beautiful it is until you're on the edge of it, looking out into this massive expanse. And things that are huge in it look just normal size because it's just so, so big. And it really just inspires fear and joy and awe. And when Amanda and I went a few years ago, we were just kind of on the edge just taking it in and not saying anything. And some guy, maybe was a believer, probably Mormon, uh, he walked up and he's like, he's like, hey man, can you believe this? Like, somebody had to have made that. And in my mind, I was like, dude, I know that. Leave me alone. Like, this is not an appropriate place to talk about how amazing this is. Because it doesn't do it any justice. The only thing that's really appropriate when you're standing and looking at the Grand Canyon is just to be there. And to be in its presence and to be in awe. And with the Eiffel Tower in a much lesser way, but also with the Grand Canyon, I know I found myself, I couldn't take my eyes off it. No matter where we are, were in the area, the vicinity, I wondered where it was. And when it was time to leave, I paused and looked back a number of times because I wanted to just soak it up in my mind as much as possible. And now when I see pictures or videos or movies or TV shows with the Grand Canyon in it, it does a few things. One, it makes me want to go back because they don't grasp it at all. Like, the most beautiful picture doesn't even come close. I spent like 30 minutes this week trying to find a quality Grand Canyon picture, and there was dozens, but I'm like, none of these are good enough. I was like, that's kind of where I'm going with the sermon. So, that makes sense. But the Eiffel Tower, the Grand Canyon, sunsets, sunrises, beautiful things. We can take pictures, we can film them, but it never quite grasps how glorious they are and awe-inspiring they are in person. Today, we're going to walk through... Uh, a bit more of Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to see Paul do this same thing with Jesus. We started Colossians last week. We're going to be in it for 10 weeks, so eight more weeks after this. And John Demeter started off last week, and this letter is written by Paul, the apostle, who's planted and started churches. He's spread the gospel after he encountered Jesus, and 
as he's going on mission and stopping at places, he proclaims the gospel. People believe a church starts, but they don't have, like, the Bible, like we have it. They have some, uh, some of the gospels and scrolls, but it's all verbal. And this church in Colossae is about a, it's about 100 miles away from Ephesus, where Paul was for about three years. And Paul has actually never even been there. He wasn't the one who started the church. He's never met these people that he's writing to. Another man named Epaphras did and reported to Paul while Paul was in Rome in prison about the church. So Epaphras probably heard the gospel from Paul, got saved, went back to his hometown and started telling everybody about it. And people believe. It's a small church. They love Jesus, but they need some encouragement and correction. So last week we saw this beginning section where Paul is just telling him how much he's praying for them. Why he's praying for them? Because they love the Lord, their faith in him. They're spreading the gospel. And what he's praying for them, that they'd be filled with all the wisdom and knowledge of God, that they would bear fruit in all things. And then it ended in verses 13 and 14, that section, where Paul says this, talking about God. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. In almost all of Paul's letters, almost all of them, Paul starts out the first part of the letter encouraging the believers, reminding them they're being prayed for, reminding them of who Jesus is, reminding them of who they are in Christ, who their identity is now that they've been saved. And then as he goes, he then says, so this is what that means, and gives them instruction and direction on how to live the Christian life. So Paul ends this beginning section with talking about how this this God has delivered them from the domain of darkness, his other kingdom, and he's transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus, in whom they have, and we have, redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And what we'll see today is Paul then pauses, and it's almost like he can't contain himself as he describes who this Jesus is. You've been saved, bought from this evil place, brought to a new place, made totally new by Jesus. You have redemption. Your sins are forgiven. Now let me tell you who this Jesus is. In verse 15 it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is all Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Before we dive in deep, we're going to just stop on two things, some house, I'll call them housekeeping issues. When we read this, especially in the English, you're like, what else, other language would I read it in? Um, there's two things I think that can be problematic, so we're going to clarify those real quick. The one is the second 
descriptor in verse 15. It says he's the image of the invisible God. And then it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Which your theology hat is going, hold on. What does that mean? Isn't Jesus fully God? He wasn't created. He's been around forever. But this makes it sound. What Paul is saying here is not that Jesus was created by the Father. As like a, a son is born. He's saying it's not his timeline that he was created by the Father. He's saying Jesus is creator, but he is, has all the riches and authority and privilege that the firstborn son of a king would have. Our culture doesn't really value firstborn sons. I am the only son of my parents. I make sure my sisters know that. But in other times, I would be the most important child in my family. Because I'm going to carry the family name. I'm going to be the one who's going to get all of my parents' wealth or land or whatever it may be. And I'm going to take over for the family name as we move forward. I have the inheritance of the family. And when you take it to a royal level, the king has everything. And his firstborn son gets everything that he has. So he's saying, Paul is saying, not that Jesus was created like some other religions would say, but that he is creator and he has everything that the Father has, which as we walk through John, we heard him say that multiple times. The other thing I want to clarify is verse 23, and I'll start at 22. He's talking about the believers. He's saying, Jesus is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And you're like, yeah! Verse 23, if Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. In the English translation, this implies doubt. So we read this. I read this and I go, whoa, what does this mean? Jesus said in John 10, he's the good shepherd, that I am in his hand. He's in the Father's hand. Nothing can snatch me out of his hand. But this seems like maybe I can fall away from the faith or lose my salvation. The good news is that in the Greek... Paul's verb tense and mood that he uses has zero doubt implied. So we have the word if there, which makes us go, oh no, that means it could happen. But the original language, there's none of that. There's no doubt whatsoever. Paul is saying that he has no doubt at all that this will happen, that they will remain stable and steadfast, believing this hope. So it's almost like in English we could say, and above reproach before him, as indeed you continue in the faith. Like it will happen. I'm, I believe you'll continue to stay stable and steadfast in the faith. So I'm going to clarify those two things because I feel like when I've read this before, those two things jump out and I don't really grasp anything else because I'm like, what's going on here? So Jesus is the focal point. And this is potentially a poem or a hymn that Paul kind of paused and he wrote in a different format. And he's just glorifying Jesus the one who has rescued you from the domain of darkness. He's, you're in his kingdom now. You've been bought. You're forgiven. And then he says, who is Jesus? And in these verses, Paul says this. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's the creator of all things. And all things have been created to bring him glory. They're for him. And when we talk all things, we talk everything that we can see, everything we can't see, everything that's spiritual, everything that's uh, tangible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authority, the dust and the weeds that are growing in the parking lot to the whole world and the whole galaxy. He's created all these things, Jesus has. He's before all things, more important, and he existed 
before them. He's holding all things together. Literally, the atoms in your body are not just going, because Jesus is holding them together. That's insane. He's the head of the body in verse 18, the church, which means he leads and guides and sustains us as his body. He's the beginning. In John, we see this. In Revelation, we see this. He's the beginning over all things, and he's also the end. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's preeminent in all things, which means he's surpassing all others. He's supreme. It says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. All of God, not part, but all of God is in Jesus. It says he's reconciling all things. And again, we're talking on earth and in heaven. And he's making peace by the blood of his cross. This is who Jesus is. I love sports a lot. Uh, not like in an unhealthy way. But I love sports. I've always enjoyed them. I like playing them. I like watching them. Um, and I, I adopted, please don't boo me. I've never really had an NFL team because the Cardinals were terrible growing up here. Like, if you knew, you knew. And so a few years ago, I was like an NFL fan free agent. And I said, I'm going to just be a Steelers fan. Okay, so there's Matt's. Yeah, you should boo me, but you're not going to because you love me. Um, and, and I'm like, right, they beat the Cardinals in 08 or 09. I was sad. But I'm like, I just don't care. Right? We root for the Cardinals, yay, but when they lose, I just kind of laugh at my friends who love them. I'm a Suns fan, so I just had a decade of that. Um, and I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to root for the Steelers. But I don't really, I'm not from Pittsburgh, never been to Pittsburgh, don't really care about, much about the Steelers, but I said, we're going to root for them. So we went a few years ago to when the, the Steelers came here to play the Cardinals, because we got us tickets and my in-laws tickets, because we just knew, man, that's like a bucket list item for my father-in-law. That's kind of why I decided to root for them, because they like them. So we're like, we're going to bless them with this Christmas gift. And so we went to the Cardinal Stadium and rooted for the Steelers, which some of you are like so mad right now. And again, I'm like, a, this is my first year being a Steelers fan at this point. I don't really know that much about the team. And it was a close game the whole time. I think it was Kyler Murray's rookie or the quarterback of the Cardinals. And the Cardinals were kind of coming back. And then Kyler, instead of running it in the end zone, he throws an interception to the Steelers. Again, I'm a new Steelers fan, but I'm all in. And as the ball's like being thrown, and I know it's going to be intercepted, I'm watching, and like the millisecond it gets intercepted, I'm like, yeah! Jumped out of my seat, super excited for this one dude who I've never met, barely know anything about him, for the team that I just started rooting for, right? But I was like, yes! Screaming and yelling in a way that I would never do the rest of my normal life. Like when I'm at the bank, I don't do that, you know? <laughs> Things that are way more exciting do not bring me that joy. And the same thing with going to the Suns game or watching a big, huge play on, on a whatever the, you know, baseball diamond or whatever it may be. It's like, yes! But when we read about Jesus being over all things, creating all things, holding our bodies together right now, and we're like, oh yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Like Jesus is Lord of all. Everything, he created everything. Everything is for his glory. Every single thing. Every blade of grass, like the reason it's that long is because he's allowing it to grow that much. And we read it and we're like, yeah, 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 that's Jesus, okay. But then Joe Schmo gets an interception and I'm like doing backflips. <laughs> Woo! So let us, not that we need to go crazy right now, but 
This is what we're trying to get to. This is, I think, what Paul is trying to get to. Like, hey, Colossian believers, you're new, but you believe this. Let me tell you who it is that you believe in. Let me tell you who it is that saved you. He's the image of the invisible God. He's over all creation. He has created everything. Everything is by him and through him and for him. He's seated at the throne of God. This is the Jesus we worship. He's saved you. He's reconciled you. It says in the next few verses that he's presented you holy. Words that we would never say about ourselves. Holy, without sin, above reproach before God. That we now, when we are face to face with God, we are above reproach. Why? Because of what Jesus has done and because who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. He's over all things. Do you know him? Can you even fathom him? I can give you stats about the Grand Canyon, and you're like, cool, boring. I don't even know what 177 miles long is. Like a little, like, like Las Cruces. That's not super exciting. But when you go to the Grand Canyon, you stand on the edge, you're overcome. I've never, ever heard of anybody walk up and go, huh, okay. Like there's nothing greater. You have to be blown away and in awe. And this is who Jesus is. Yes, he came to earth and he lived a humble life, but that doesn't take away from his power, it just adds to it. He allowed these things to happen. He allowed himself to become a baby. He allowed himself to be crucified like a criminal, but then he rose from the dead. And then he went to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God over all things. This Jesus, who is massively high and lifted up, is also the same Jesus who loves you. Because I think we can read this passage and feel like pretty intimidated and be really starkly reminded of our sin and feel like we are not worthy of him because it's true. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. Paul now talking about the believers in Colossae. He says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. So this Jesus, this Savior, Lord, Creator, Sustainer, Life Giver, and then he turns his gaze to the Colossians. And you... And us, how are we described? Alienated from God. Hostile in mind. Doing evil deeds. And that should be our response as we, our, the holiness of God is brought to our attention. Our only response should be, I'm not worthy. And yet, in verse 23, sorry, 22, the gospel truth comes through. Though you hated God, and if you are not a Christian in here right now, you hate God, even though you might not feel that way. You're an enemy of God. It says, Jesus has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. And again, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God as you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This is who you are in Christ because of what he has done and that he continues to do. But if you're anything like me, you so often forget this truth. 
you so often forget that who Jesus is. I know it feels like the moment I get in my vehicle to leave here, it's like, okay, click back into the flesh mode, right? Like, they just cut me off. That light is red and it shouldn't be in my mind, right? <laughs> or whatever it may be. It's like we come to church and it's not like all temptation goes away, but we get to come with other believers and worship together and glorify Jesus together and be reminded of the truth of the gospel. And the rest of the week we're reminded of all the lies of the enemy that try to tell us that this truth is not true. That this Jesus we worship is not actually creator. He doesn't actually love you. All these different things. And Paul writes this to remind the Colossians and to remind us that this is true. That Jesus is who he says he is. Our culture as a whole is not a God-honoring culture. But often, at least I have an experience, like most of my friends who are not Christians and are even like vehemently opposed to Christ, they're not, they don't like spit in his face. They don't say like, I hate Jesus. They won't denigrate him, but they'll diminish him. And our culture does this. So people are like, oh yeah, Jesus is cool. Like he was a good teacher or he was like super laid back or whatever it would be, but they won't say he's Lord. So they often diminish who he is instead of maybe desecrating him outright. We're going to watch a quick clip. It's like a minute and a half from the James Corden show. I know, super holy on Sunday mornings. Late night talk show. Some of you are familiar. Uh, Within like 10 days ago, 11 days ago, they talked through this. So we'll take a look at that. Thank you for being here. Welcome, Welcome everybody. everybody. Nice to see you. You, Elle you Fanning. Elle Fanning. Fanning. I love Elle Fanning. I do too. She's great. She's great. Have you watched her show, The Great? The great? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. She plays she Catherine the Great. Big hit in our house. house. Massive, Massive show. show. Yeah. Yeah. If you if could you portray, portray any famous, famous historical, historical figure, figure, get ready, Reggie, we're coming to you. Who would you play? Maybe like a, like a broad out Jesus. Yeah. Wasn't Jesus already pretty broad out? Yeah. I think he was pretty broad out. He's laid back. The guy was super chill. Yeah. Turn, turn, turn him turn stuff into stuff wine. Yeah, and he's like, like, people, people, people are freaking out. We haven't got enough food. He's like, guys, relax. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take I'll care of it. What do we what got? We got? Five, Five loaves, three fishes. fishes. I'll make, I'll make it, it work. It's going right? to be fine, man. <laughs> what is wakeboarding but walking on water? Correct. That's it. The whole thing. He was super chill. Super broed out. Yeah. He always had his bros with him. Yeah. Arguably, the, the disciples, disciples were the original, the original bros. The original bros. Like, kind of like, like, like entourage, entourage, but about, about Jesus and his friends. And his friends. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Born in a, born born in a barn. barn. Yeah. You know? You know oh, what happened when you were born? Oh, three kings turned up. They've been following a star. They brought me some stuff. Like, the whole thing is, he is arguably the original children. His friends are like, I didn't even know Jesus knew three kings. And it's like, he never talks about it. Yeah, he never talks about it. He had the beard, he had the hair. Yeah, dude. like, dude, what do you think? The thing is, they're going to kill you. I'll come back. Yeah. Super funny. So that's what we're talking about, right? Like, our culture doesn't desecrate or denigrate Jesus, but they diminish him. And even, I was reading up James Corden's parents, like he grew up as part of the Salvation Army. His parents are like really solid believers based on everything we've seen. I don't 
looks like he's not walking with Jesus anymore, but he's clearly aware of who Jesus is. Like he knew even five bread and three loaves, you know, all these different things. But he's Jesus in that clip, which again, all, all that was accurate. <clears throat> like he really did say he was going to die and he did say he was going to come back. I don't know if it was as laid back as they made it sound, but all those things were true, but they're not fully who Jesus is, right? They weren't proclaiming his lordship on that show, but they were talking about him. We do this all the time, though. Sometimes in our outright sin, we just push Jesus away and we say, Jesus, I know you're calling me to this. Get out of my way. I am going to pursue this, whatever it is, this sinful thing. But often we demote Jesus by promoting other things above him. It's often not a, Jesus, get out of my way. I want to do what I want to do. It's a subtle, small, little thing that becomes a bigger thing. And at the end of it, these typically good things get promoted above Jesus and he gets demoted down below where he should be. So we see kind of a picture of him, like we talked to earlier, with the Eiffel Tower or the Grand Canyon or a sunset. We might see a glimpse of him or a clip of him, or maybe it's like when I take my glasses or contacts off and look at the Christmas tree, and I'm like, I know it's there, but it's just real fuzzy, right? But when I put my glasses on, I see how beautiful it actually is. And that's how it feels with Jesus a lot of the time. And that's what the Bible says. We see him dimly right now because we're not face to face with him. But we have the word and his spirit works in us to remind us of who he is so that Jesus would be on the throne of our hearts. That everything that we would do would be by him and through him and for him. And just like we said earlier with the Grand Canyon, when we're face to face with Jesus or even when we're reminded of who he is in texts like these or when he shows up in ways and saves a family member from dying or gives you that like that prayer answer that you've been praying for for so long and you experience him, you have no choice but to be in awe of him and worship him. He's no longer a caricature or like my little sidekick I keep in my pocket, but he's good and he's huge and he's Lord and he's over all things. This passage says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, all things Visible, invisible, on earth and in heaven, kingdoms and rulers and presidents and governors and everyone is created for him and through him and by him. He's before all things. All things are held together in him. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he would surpass all things. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile it to himself. All things, all things. This is not a small gospel. This is not a, you ask Jesus to save you so that you don't get punished with hell. Jesus is over all things and he will redeem your heart. He'll change how you operate. He'll help you love your kids and your spouse and your the stranger better. He'll help you with your finances and whatever it is. He is over all things. And that's just what he says in this passage. We can look through the whole Bible and see he's creator, he's Lord. He's seated at the right hand of God. In Hebrews, it said he's seated because his work is done. All the priests in Jewish customs would have to rise daily to offer sacrifices because they would constantly have to seek forgiveness for their sins and the people's sins. Jesus did his work. He can sit now. The throne is warm, as our friend Josh Miles would say. 
He's exalted over all things. In Philippians, it says right after it says he humbled himself to become a servant, it says that one day at his name, every single knee of everyone who's ever existed will bow at his name. We will joyfully bow. Lord, it's you. But all our friends who hate Jesus will bow too. Every time an angel or God or Jesus show up in the Bible, what's the first response of the person they're showing up to? They hit the deck, and half of them act like they're dead. Because they're not worthy. They get to experience God's power, and they realize how small they are. Jesus is high and lifted up. All, all of heaven worships him, is worshiping him right now, nonstop. Nonstop. And Revelation talks about there's this scroll, and no one can open it. And in heaven, everyone's sad about this. And this lamb who has been slain, he shows up, Jesus, and he opens it. And everyone says, worthy are you of, to receive blessing and honor and praise and power and wealth. Everything is yours, Jesus. That is happening right now, forever. One day he's going to return. The clouds are going to break open. Jesus is going to come down. And everyone across the whole earth in that exact moment will know he's here. It's not like he's going to like hit Spain first. And 10 hours later, we'll be like, oh, Jesus is here. I saw it on Twitter. Twitter won't exist when Jesus comes back. Jesus one day will come back and he'll redeem all his people and he'll destroy all the wicked. When you watch the news and your heart aches because these wicked people keep prospering, Jesus one day will destroy that to the point that even the devil will be destroyed. This is the Jesus we worship. And yet, though he sits high and lifted up, he's over all things, every intricate deal of our lives he is aware of and he's over and he's allowing to happen. He's ordaining. He also bends low. He's not just high and lifted up and far off, but he wipes your tears, like we read earlier. And he bends low to the weak and the humble. And he gives grace. And he comforts the sufferer. He gives sight to the blind. He touches the leper. This is the Jesus we worship. This Jesus. So when everything else in your life tells you that that's not who saved you, and that they can save you, you could tell it to shut its mouth, like it says in the Psalms. This is the Jesus we worship. He loves you. He pursues you. Not just pursued, but he continues to pursue you. He's rescued you. He's made you new. He gives you life. The power that God, he's all of God, we now have in us through his spirit. He carries you. He holds you together. This is the Jesus we worship. So what's our response? Let's be in awe of him. Usually with sermons, we try to give like a practical takeaway. And that's super important. And John and I were talking this week of like, man, what's the takeaway? And we just said, man, this is just a different sermon because we want to just be in awe of Jesus. We want to be in awe of Jesus every moment of our life. So you, believer, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, keeping your hope on the gospel because you've been saved and you are holy. doesn't matter what you did 10 minutes before you got here. You are holy and blameless and above reproach because of what Jesus has done and who he is. Let's be in awe of him. Lord God, you're really, really good. And even as I begin to pray right now, I'm immediately confronted with the fact that like my prayer is nothing 
compared to your glory, and yet you say that the prayers of your believers is like incense before you. And you've made us holy, and we've done nothing to deserve it. Would we walk every moment of our lives, Lord, for you? Would we love you, Lord, just a fraction of the love you have for us? As the enemy constantly lies to us and tells us things that aren't true, would we be reminded of the truth that we are adopted and beloved sons and daughters of God? That you know us and love us well enough to create every single piece of us and to hold us together. You certainly can carry us when we need you, which is always. Lord, may we be in awe of you. We desperately need you. And you have to be the one to do the work, Lord. We, we really let us depend on you and rely on you in all things. Please, God, your name. Amen.